Hello, everyone. Dr. Anna Kabeca here. And today we're going to talk about a very fun and controversial topic, and that is birth control. So birth control is something that every woman in her time, in her lifetime, at some point or another, has to deal with. We're going to talk about the normal hormone changes, like what is, when is it the best time to use birth control, and what kind of birth control should we use, and how should we do it, and hit on some topics about our perimenopausal change, when it's a time period when doctors are often saying, oh, well, let's just get you on birth control pills, you know, till you're in your 50s, and that's fine. And um, we'll see, you know, and we'll carry you through menopause on birth control pills. And we'll talk about the consequences of that as well. And I have a special guest here today, Dr. Laura Bryden, who is coming from Sydney, Australia, who is a specialist in this area. In fact, she's written a book called The Period Repair Manual, this beautiful, really well-written, instructional, informative, inspiring series on the period repair manual. We've all fought with our periods at some time or another, and, um, and this is a great source. So I reached out to her to come talk with all of us today about this issue of birth control and uh, and birth control pills specifically um, and to give us some really good current information on what our options are and also why we really don't want it. It was really nice to hear another specialist talking about some of the negatives associated with birth control pills. And we're going to get into that. Some that you may not have expected, such as with our GI tract and our microbiome, but we're going to talk about that now. So uh, let's go ahead and let me introduce Laura to you. And as I introduce Laura, she is an amazing naturopathic doctor out of Sydney, Australia. She had her education at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. And graduated in 1997, started really working on areas of um, healthy probiotics, what was important also in hormone balance, such as with PCOS. And she's authored this amazing book called The Period Repair Manual. So I'm excited to have you here, Dr. Laura. You can tell us a little bit about your journey and what brought you to actually author this extensive review. Oh, great to be here, Anna. Thanks so much for a lovely introduction. Um, well, the way I came to specialize in women's health and to this book was just starting out in general naturopathic practice. And of course, many of the people that were coming to me were women and women of all ages struggling with hormonal problems and period problems. And just in those early years on the ground, I just learned very quickly that um, the, the female hormonal system responds very well to diet, supplements, stress reduction, all of those things that, you know, I'm sure you know about. And I just, so this book, after 20 years of doing that, this book was just my attempt to create a, a succinct compilation of things that really work. Yeah, it's beautiful. So let's talk about some of that evolution, like from your clients who were um, struggling with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and I'm, per, I'm sure many of them 
Well, let's, let's let, actually, let's start with the birth control pills, yeah. right? Let's start talking about our current practice of using birth control pills for so many things in medicine from birth control, right? Besides that, to acne, to irregular cycles, to menopausal symptoms. And I want definitely to hear your input on that. Yeah, well, don't you find we're at a strange time with it where it's considered this one-size-fits-all treatment? And the reason I think it's so appealing and maybe we've fallen into this, as one colleague put it, kind of this lazy way of treating women with the pill is it, it, what it does is it erases kind of pesky hormonal symptoms or you know, can erase them by shutting down the hormonal system. So, of course, you're not, you know, that's just sort of that's the approach is well, let's just turn it all off shut it all down, give a, what is essentially a, you know, hormone replacement, um, and just kind of keep that in a steady state until women are done with their hormones when they reach menopause. You know, it's really, it's kind of a crazy idea. And I just have this vision because I'm an optimist. I, I'm very confident that future generations will look back at how we treated women in these decades and just find it very strange. Mm, yeah. And, um, to, it's, it's interesting because the birth control pill evolved to kind of totally suppress our natural hormone cycle, but yet imitated it in an artificial way. Yeah. And so, um, so what I found that was pretty critical, like if we're talking about stages of life and using birth control, because many of the women that I treat have teenagers like I do, you know, dealing with these things too. And so our perimenopause, menopausal transition, and we've got teenagers too. So yeah. I want to talk about less, you know, when many of us started birth control pills. And I know from my practice, I often would see clients early from early teens, 13 and on, on birth control pills already. And the reason was because of acne and painful periods. So let's talk about some of the consequences of that. Okay. And the first, I, first of all, I want to quote this other brilliant doctor who, I don't know if you've met, Dr. Gerilyn Pryor. She's a reproductive endocrinologist in Canada. She said, I heard her on a podcast say this, and I believe her. And I've just, you know, with one of those moments of just where the penny dropped for me, she said that a woman's what's called the HPO axis or the, you know, the communication between the brain and the ovaries, that system takes 12 years to mature. And so, you know, those early years from 13 to 25, you know, that's when our hormonal system is learning itself, getting a, you know, getting us the feedback mechanisms in place. It's a pretty critical time. And so then the interviewer asked herself, well, what happens if you give a 14 year old, hormonal contraception that shuts that all down, she said, it's, it's stalled at that point. You know, that, that woman then has to attempt to mature her reproductive communication system after coming off. And of course, that's so one of the consequences can be we do see women coming off the pill in their 20s and are struggling to get to, you know, establish regular periods. And to me, that's one of, that was one of the most sort of just groundbreaking, like I just really thought that gave me a lot of food for thought is like, what are we doing to these young women? Definitely, definitely pause for thought on that aspect because, you know, when you think about that, taking a pause in our reproductive communication system, when we consider yeah. that our, our hormones and, you know, and, and specifically estrogen, progesterone, testosterone are connected to our neurotransmitter, serotonin, yeah. GABA, and dopamine, and we're, we're artificially, um, 
suppressing in a way those pathways um, and how and I actually I've, I hadn't considered how that affects neurotransmitter maybe that that whole communication system between the neurotransmitters because when I know when clients are coming off the birth control pill, the anxiety, the depression, the mood swings, their regular cycles, you know, that's considered normal coming off of birth control pills, that that may be part of that. That reason is because it suppressed the development yep. of those neuroendocrine pathways yes. and community between natural flux peaks and valleys in our hormones which occurs naturally but doesn't occur on the birth control pills absolutely and That's as you say yeah as you say this our steroid hormones affect our brain very strongly they 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 change the shape of our brain they mold our brain and there's research now coming out of berkeley university there that women who take hormonal birth control have altered brain structures compared to women who have natural cycles. And so, so then they, yeah, of course the researchers say this is probably part of the explanation for why women on hormonal birth control report anxiety and depression, which everyone knows that they do. That's frightening. It's yes. quite frightening because this is. is, that's pretty new research. Yes. And, uh, and it's fascinating. So, so then when, um, what is the consensus on healing those nerve that development system after they come off birth control pills? And again, it's not common for a woman in her 20s to have been on birth control pills for 10 years. It's not uncommon. Exactly. Well, what, I don't think there is a consensus. I mean, I think some women are, there's always going to be some women who can bounce back from that and are the women who just seem to have a very vital system and their ovaries just kick back into action. And I'm so relieved when I see that and happy for them. And for the women that are struggling with long-term amenorrhea, which might be diagnosed as PCOS, depending on their exact circumstance, it can be a long road. You know, it can go on. I've got women, I'm sure you've the same, who've been off the pill for a couple of years and no periods and no real explanation and it's um i don't think we at this stage i don't have you know i think a lot of what we that we do that sort of just self-care and the nutrition and that can really help but they there's still something their body has to go through a process of maturation that i'm not sure how we get around that i mean i my right. preference would be to, to not give 14 year olds hormonal birth control i really think right. Because as you say, it's being given for skin and painful periods. And those are things that respond to natural treatment. Those girls don't need, one, one analogy I heard is like giving hormonal birth control for that is like, you know, killing a frog with a steamroller. It's total overkill. You know, it's, it's, it's really not required to shut oh, down their so hormonal true. system. Absolutely, absolutely. And so like if, thinking um, in that first scenario where someone is, you know, now 10, 15, 20 years on birth control and, and kind of readapting their hormone system, I think, you know, just the, again, theoretically, or just in, in um, practice with working with clients who have come off of long time birth control pills is definitely that whole functional medicine approach. We, yes. first of all, we'll talk about long-term consequences of birth control pill, but just reestablishing healthy microbiome, the probiotics, yes. you know, the nourishment for, um, re, you know, 
while they're on birth control pills, but definitely when they're coming off because birth control pills leach nutrients like magnesium and zinc and your B vitamins and your folate. And so replenishing those certainly, so those nutrients, as well as, um, you know, bioidentical progesterone to kind of reestablish that rhythm and to help support that rhythm, I could see that that would be beneficial too, just to, you know, especially, you know, there's a few things here and I think we'll get to talk about that, but I know when I would, um, use birth control pills in clients for certain reasons in the perimenopause, menopause, and adding bioidentical progesterone during that time while they're on birth control pills can be incredibly beneficial. I wonder if that helps, um, mediate some of those consequences but also i think really important for our listeners to understand is that birth control pills do leach nutrients do require increased magnesium and we're already living in a society with depleted magnesium but also affect our microbiome so so let's talk about um what birth control pills are doing to our microbiome and then i want to go back and talk about um, alternative ways to work with our teens when they're coming in Okay, those were all great. First, I just want to respond to something you said about um, how great net progesterone is. And as you know, you know, um, if women, sometimes there is a situation if women aren't currently making it themselves, it can be beneficial to give it. I just wrote a, I just wrote a blog post called "The Seven Superpowers of Progesterone." It's you know, it's an amazing hormone. It really, yeah. you know, invigorates us and vitalizes us in so many ways. And one thing, one takeaway message from the, this entire podcast. <laughs> And really, I'd say my entire blog and my entire work is the progestins in the pill, the synthetic so-called progesterones are not progesterone. This, this is where, you know, a lot of the whole thinking about birth control just falls down. We, we've been, we were told that these are just kind of like our own hormones, mimicking our own cycle. They're not. The progestins are, fun. The progestins are things, our molecules called jospronone and levongestrol and all these molecules, steroid molecules, that are not the same as progesterone. They don't have the same benefits. They don't have the same structure. They don't have the same effect on the brain, even remotely. In fact, their effect on the brain can be quite opposite to real progesterone. So that's, and I think that's something that I don't think even researchers and doctors always understand that, and certainly journalists don't. So of course, there's a confusion when some of us are saying, it's better for women to have our, we, we need our own hormones because they're beneficial it's people aren't really often hearing that because they're thinking, well, what's the big deal? These are women's hormones that you're taking in a pill form. It's like, no, they're not. They're not the same. <laughs> that's so true. Exactly. And that's, you know, it's one of the things I lecture on is using bioidentical hormones and just showing the difference between progestins and progesterone yes. and the cardiovascular functions yeah. and the effects, et cetera, as well as, um, the studies that showed increased risk of breast cancer with progestins, not progesterone. And then we're putting young teens on this. And I know there was an early study that looked at using birth control pills less than age 16 is very detrimental to the breast and can decrease healthy breasts long-term, right? Increase our risk for fibrocystic breast, DCIS, maybe even um, breast cancer because the maturation of the breast are not done before age 16. Exactly. And the bones, Anna, too. We know that women, girls who start birth control very young don't get, don't get an opportunity to reach their peak, what's called peak bone mass, that we're supposed to, peak bone density that we're supposed to reach in our 20s. They're not getting there. 
because progesterone is a bone building hormone, for example, yes. and progestins are not. Absolutely. Just, that's, just one of, that's just one of probably 50 things, 50 differences or more. <laughs> but we won't, we won't go on about all the differences. Um, I think this, you mentioned microbiome, and which is our intestinal bacteria. They're affected by certain hormones. And so it makes sense that the effect of our own estrogen and our own progesterone on the microbiome is going to be different than that of the big doses of synthetic estrogen, which is, again, it's a different molecule than our own estrogen, which is coming in, we're swallowing, hitting the gut bacteria. No wonder it affects microbiome. No wonder it changes it and causes yeast infections and changes immune system because it's changing the intestinal bacteria, depletes nutrients, as you said, absolutely. It makes sense. It's, it's doesn't really, it's not like rocket science. It doesn't take, <laughs> it's not, it just doesn't take, it's not that complicated to figure out. It's a different hormonal situation for the bacteria. Yeah, absolutely. And again, how, how our microbiome is tied to our neurotransmitters, right? To that yeah. sense of ability to have, uh, you know, peaks and valleys of emotions, the yeah. um, serotonin, the natural production of serotonin, et cetera. That's important for anxiety. It's important for our kids, you know, developmental process and, and their ability to cope, especially as teenagers. So empowering them with a healthy microbiome and doing, you know, there's enough that we're exposed to that we worry about it. So focusing on our, um, focusing on our teens again, so what are some things that you do with your, with teenagers to keep them, you know, to help them for the many reasons they're coming in either um, and have been offered birth control for So what are your alternatives? Yeah. Let's talk about skin. Cause that's the big one, isn't it? And that's, you know, these, and, and not, I don't want to belittle that because I know it's, I know it's a big problem. It's like, certainly it affects self-esteem. It's, you know, I take it very seriously. Um, but it's, I, I'm going to go as far as to say always it's affected by diet. So diet is a very powerful way to clear skin. Um, and it's a better way in the long term because the problem with using hormonal birth control to control acne is that it's only a temporary solution. In fact, it's worse than that because, it, because of the way it works, it suppresses skin oils very strongly. So it clears up skin very quite well, especially some of the progestins, some, of, some kinds of some of the drugs and hormonal birth control. But they, I read some research that it suppresses skin oils to the level of a child, like way below what it should be for an adult. And so no wonder there's this kind of rebound effect when you come off. I mean, the way I see it is the skin oils have to upregulate their production just to kind of counteract this suppression. And then when you remove the pill, the dreaded post-pill acne, often you get women reporting, okay, this skin, this terrible skin is worse than I ever had, worse than I had as a teenager, worse than I've ever seen. That's what's waiting for them in their 20s when they come off birth control that they started in their teens. It's just, it's not, to me, that's just not worth it. And I know maybe from a teen's perspective, they don't see it that way. It's like, I don't care what my skin's like at 30. I just want clear skin now. It's like, but perhaps as a parent, you know, just see the big picture and realize it's very possible to help these girls and i mean boys have bad skin too so the advice we're going to talk about now should help them too i'm sure skin's very much affected by sugar and junk food and potential i'm, I'm going to say cow dairy dairy products absolutely yeah i know that maybe can be controversial to say but that's just the that's just the reality on the ground clinically that's what ha helps get get them off and by sugar i mean 
soft drinks like pop and you know fruit juice and desserts and ice cream and sugary milky coffees and um smoothies and <laughs> you know all that desserts absolutely and even artificial sweeteners so there's diet sodas just as bad but all like i think my biggest thing is is getting them off a of dairy for yep. sure yeah getting them on a herbal hormonal support or nutrient support multivitamins zinc magnesium, a good multivitamin and mineral is so beneficial. But so you're saying, so get, get them off of sugars, get them off of dairy and get them off of, you know, sodas, artificial sweeteners, those food coloring and processed food. What are some other big ones? Those are the biggest by far. I tend to, with teenagers, I don't get too complicated with diet. I mean, I also, I also try to put an emphasis on eating as much real food as they can. So not filling, like, yeah, not, not filling up on junk food because they need the nutrition from a proper meal that has, you know, usually, you know, protein, vegetables, they need that. Their hormonal systems need that. Their skin needs that. Um, and I think, and the other thing is if you fill, the, fill them up on these real foods, they're not going to have to be reaching for snack foods and sugary foods when they're out with their friends and, you know, hungry. Right. Kids get hungry. This is, we have to, and young women do too. And the other thing I want to just speak to a little bit is we have this, one thing that in our society that really disturbs me is what seems to be this message to women and young girls that we shouldn't eat too much, that women don't get hungry or, you know, girls get hungry. It's like, yeah, you need to, if you're hungry, you need to have a meal. You know, if you're hungry, you don't just have a little fruit smoothie to get you past and get, get you by, you need to eat something. So that's an important part of the strategy and i give zinc to teenagers i'm not afraid to give you know i might give 30 or 40 milligrams of zinc sometimes not long term maybe at that that's a moderate dose they need to take it with food or they'll feel sick to their stomach but zinc whether they're deficient or not actually zinc has a it's like almost like a medicine for skin it has a very strong effect on dry it reduces um blocks male hormones like sorry in women but it it doesn't it helps male hormones in, in men, in boys. It, um, it's antibacterial, antimicrobial, it's good for the immune system. It's the perfect medicine. I agree. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and healthy hair growth and, yeah. and, um, and, and so with that, you know, one of the reasons that women are getting the acne too. It's a testosterone conversion to yeah. dihydrotestosterone, the male hormone. So yeah. te- stress increases that conversion. So de-stressing is huge. But zinc also helps block that enzyme that converts testosterone to dihydrotestosterone in women. And so that's another great reason. But definitely our, our teens are overstressed, overworked, overworried. And yep. so um, those practices also will make a difference. Absolutely. You know what blocks that enzyme, just on that sort of topic? Um, I think progesterone then regulates that as well. I mean, just, so just having the value of having cycles where we ovulate and make progesterone, that helps, it helps with skin in the big picture as well. Yeah, well, I think that's also that maturation too, that healthier skin, yeah. more beautiful skin, and, and that hair, the beautiful hair yeah. from progesterone too. That's yeah. Huge. One thing I would tell my teens is when they would come in and they'd be have acne, the irregular cycles, the polycystic ovarian syndrome, right? That appearance that they're now all of a sudden their periods start. So now their ovaries are functioning and they're getting that increase in testosterone, but they're getting the acne and their regular cycles because, you know, they have like what they say that the PCOS genes or the fat 
fat genes or the acne genes or whatever they want to call it. But really what I would tell my clients is, no, you've got Pocahontas genes. So in America, like Pocahontas, that Native American Indian, you get that picture in your mind, this woman who is, you know, adventurous and in nature and in movement and, you know, speaks from her heart and, you know, she's like this explorer or, or the Amazonians. For me, it's like a Saharan, right? But I would let them know that you don't have like fat genes, you've got survivor genes. You know, you've got these amazing genes that, you know, are, are designed to help you with fertility and for muscle strength and to, you know, survive in times of famine for a really long time. I have those genes. And it's just not fair. But um, <laughs> so I think changing the perspective, too, of how they're dealing with it, that will make a difference for them. How they're seeing their, their selves will de-stress. Absolutely. You know, I agree that the PCOS sort of genotype or is potentially, as you say, it's actually, it's a really good thing. We have it for a reason. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very vital potentially sort of genotype. And also, one interesting thing about PCOS is, you know, most of us, the that kind of PCOS situation of a little bit higher androgens and reduced insulin sensitivity is normal for teenagers, adolescents. This is something I've just sort of information I've just taken on. That's kind of a normal phase we go through. This is also part of the maturation too. And I think that no one's really looked at this or studied this, but I think another thing we risk is if we give, if we suppress the hormonal system at that age and give birth control young, do we also run the risk of kind of stalling women in that natural PCOS like part of our, um, puberty, basically. It's, a, it's part of the development of gaining women's hormones. I just, yeah. I think that's a great point is that we, you know, have to recognize that while we can interfere, we really don't need to be interfering. Yeah. So, so, and that's a concern. And now, and again, there are many reasons why birth control is being prescribed, not for birth control. And those reasons, like the acne, the you know endometriosis, even we can get to that through these functional medicine principles. They're naturopathic principles that keep us healthy, mind to body, right? But often those those few things in the dietary, the few things like getting outside, getting away from these computer screens or, you know, the blue light affecting our hormonal balance can make a huge difference, but there's an option to birth control pills. And even if there's, you know, a teen that is sexually active, we have options for birth control. So how do you address that client? Yeah. Let's talk about Absolute that. First. Let's go there. <laughs> well, I just saw an interesting st statistic that millennials are not using condoms the way previous generations were there's kind of this move away from condoms which i really i picked up on that right right away it's like what is the message like what are what are these young people not what information are they not receiving that they feel like they can use condoms um i think part of it actually what worries me is that in the sort of narrative around birth control we say to these young people it's like you know condoms are not as effective as the pill therefore you know somehow kids are getting the message not to use them. But I think condoms, I think making condoms available to teenagers, depending on, you know, I guess your relationship with your teenager, it's potentially, you know, is a very, can be very helpful. It is, it is um, one of the first methods of birth control that young people can think about. I, the, when I speak to teens that I speak to who are sexually, act, who are sexually active, I, I guess we're talking, you know, 17, 18 year old, they, um, Condoms and also I think what really helped and the girls are open to this is understanding when they're fertile 
So they can do, I think even at that age, girls can do some fertility tracking or fertility awareness. You can use a little device called Daisy, a little computer device, which I'm a big fan of, or you can learn to do it on, you know, with instruction online and learn to recognize those six days per month when six days out of the cycle, when you're can fall, become pregnant. And, you know, the girls can take that on board. It's like during those days, that's when abstinence is most important. You know, so maybe I might say use a condom every on every occasion, because you should be doing that anyway for STI prevention. And then have that extra information that when you're super fertile, you should just not be risking it at all. I know I think kids, I think young, well, I'm talking kids, you know, 17, 18 can respond to that. Can what do you think? Is that, you know, the, the girls that you work with, can they I think they're intelligent enough, absolutely, to be able to express themselves. I think many of the times it's it's the peer, you know, definitely the peer pressure and the relational pressures that keep them unprotected or have them have intercourse. So my big thing is definitely want to empower them to abstinence, empower them to know yes. their own body and to having their sexual voice as well as their maturity level to understand that. Guys, this is one thing that I, um, I, um, I, I tease, but I was like, okay, we're part of SLCC, the Sex Lovers Chastity Club, because like, who do you really want to swap microbiome with, right? It's true. <laughs> It's so sad, but it, there's an essence like, okay, there's, there's a reason to, you know, mate our microbiome with the person we want to stay with, right? And also the hormonal connection of oxytocin and how that creates these false attachments and the emotional, um, uh, you know, um, vulnerability, as well as the emotional callousness that I see many people attribute over time, especially after early um, sexual interactions and multiple sexual partners, and that there's a callousness towards it. And there's, but physiologically, we know we swap microbiome. We know there's not not just about STIs or STDs. It's about um, the, the health of, you know, the health of our body, what's coming, what's coming into our body and what's coming into our sphere, what's affecting our genes, what's affecting our lives. And, and it's not, you know, we're all talking about microbiome, right? And I got on with Dr. David Perlmutter and I'm like, look, let's talk about the kissing microbiome. You know, people don't talk about that. But we know from Zika virus, Zika is, is a virus transmitted sexually and transmitted in utero. And this is devastating, y'all. And this is where we need to really take a step back and say, yeah, there, there needs to be some kind of healthy boundaries around, around this. And we have to emphasize that our children need to know about not to be frightened, but to honor the intelligence of our body and also to honor the power of our hormones. And so how to get that across to you know, all generations, not just, right? What about the divorcee, you know, the, um, you know, or, or we're looking for new partners and, you know, or whatever the situation, whatever transition you are in life that leads into the openness of new relationships. I think it's, it's we need to emphasize there's a, there's that healthy, there's healthy boundaries, healthy borders, healthy um, limits, and a healthy self-knowledge of pleasure 
and other ways to achieve it to get on to this higher intellectual level. You know, with that note, I tell girls, you know, there's a there's um, a place from one to ten where you get to know someone, right? To where you're mating, right? You're at mating level. There's ten steps, or there's ten you know, uh, phases, but often we go from one to 10 and think, oh, well, you know, 10's the end all be all. There's, you know, eight stages in the middle that are so critical to getting to know someone, to loving someone, to really having a healthy relationship and staying with someone. And, um, and that's what intimacy is about. So that's, this isn't where I expected our conversation to go, but <laughs> on this note, it's quite, it's quite, you know, I, mean, I, I think there's, there's so much to that. Biblically, we talk about soul ties. And I wonder what, if the microbiome is part of that soul tie or it's the oxytocin hormone that's part of that soul tie. But there's the connection. I agree. I think I agree with empowering young women to only have sex when it's right for them, when it's what they want, recognizing what they, yeah, what is right for them. I, I completely agree. And I think a part of that's about acknowledging that young women have a libido as well like sort of supporting them in that. It's like, it's normal to have sexual feelings, you know, it's normal to, but, but at the same time, yeah, it needs to be the right thing for you. I agree. No, I agree. I think that's um, important. And that just brings me back to another interesting thing about the pill or pill bashing. We're really pill bashing today, but it suppresses libido. And I don't, I, I, that trope worries me. And then I also sort of wonder if all these girls, you know, then I also speak to teenagers, you know, if they have low libido and, then you have to wonder, then the question is on a societal level, if they're not doing it for pleasure, then why are they having sex? And I think, I think you're right. Some of it is, a, you know, a peer pressure from society and I guess from their peers. And I think, yeah, just injecting more compassion and love into this discussion around young women be, as sexual beings mm-hmm. will help them go forward, yes. Yeah. Right, and that just allowing the maturation process in you know the our physical health our emotional health our energetic health to have you know a, a, to to be a natural process right to not yeah. be pressured to not be forced yeah. to um um be in touch. I think there's that whole concept of being self-aware that I know we've had a generation of people that have been suppressed in their own self-awareness. And so um, like to be self-aware with what is your body telling you? Like, you know, if the thought is this, this situation's not right for me, why are we in it? And, um, and that function of self-awareness and, I think that's that's really important topic. I mean, I, I talk with my menopausal ladies about this. I say, yeah. you know, it's like when you walk into the snow barefoot, your feet are like, what are you doing out here, crazy woman? Get back inside, <laughs> right? And you get that immediate signal like, okay, you know, I need to change. But if you stay there long enough, your feet will numb. And then all of a sudden you're in the snow with your feet numb and you're tolerating it. You're you're not even aware, but you stay out there long enough, then you're frostbitten and your feet are, you know, dead to the world and they're going to have to be amputated, right? So how long do we deny the sensations that we're faced with? And, and you know, maybe it's, it's that aspect of thinking, okay, well, this is the way to go because, you know, somewhere or some media or something says this is, this is the right way, but what's your body telling you? What's your instincts telling you? What's your microbiome telling you? <laughs> What's your energy telling you about what is this? Is this situation a good situation for you? Is this going towards love? 
is this, are this going away, you know, towards fear? Is this going towards fear? Is this going towards love? Is this something that's good for you? Is this something that's bad for you? It's learning the practice of discernment and being able to be in tune with yourself energetically, spiritually, um, to be able to discern those situations that are healthy for us sooner rather than later. And that comes back to taking medication if we don't have to take medication. Yeah. Looking at alternative ways and honoring that. So most of the time we're writing birth control pill when we, it's not for birth control. And, and the same goes through in the perimenopause and menopause when there was hormone changes. So I do want to give the example for our listeners that, you know, I had this gorgeous client who came from Puerto Rico and she was 17 years old and she missed a 16 and she was missing a week of school, a month of private school every month. And she um, was suffering with her grades. I mean, she literally said she didn't have more than two weeks of good weeks every month. And she's 16. She had an ultrasound, she had an ovarian cyst, and it was diagnosed she had endometriosis and she needed a surgery and they were recommending partial ovarian removal. And um, she came to see me. And I put, I just told her, stop dairy. And I put her on a, um, a product that had chaste berry in it, zinc, um, the, it's, it's by Thorn. It's the bio PMT by Thorn, um, um, T H O R N E. And it's the bio PMT formula that I used for her initially. And let me tell you in two cycles, she did, couldn't even tell her periods were coming. She did what I asked. She stopped dairy 99% of the time, maybe that maybe last <laughs> around, you know, pretty good about stopping that. And then she just took the bio PMT and that took care of it. She didn't have to have surgery. The repeat ultrasounds were negative, like the endometrioma was gone. And, uh, and that was, that's huge. That changed. I went to her graduation in Puerto Rico. I ended up going, she, you know, <laughs> and it was beautiful. And um, to see that she had the wherewithal to know that there was a better option too, and to follow through with the recommendations. And, um, and, and, and that's, it doesn't take much. These, I think the younger we are, the more resilient and reparative our body is. So do it now before you get to 50, like me. <laughs> that's, I agree completely. And I say something in my book about that. It's like, when is the best time to do period repair? When, if you can, when you're younger, the sooner the better. Because our, yeah, our bodies respond, we're so dynamic in our teens and 20s. The body can just sort things out. We can still, we can still fix things in our 40s, but it's a little bit different, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Well, let's switch to the other cycle uh, about perimenopause and, and, um, and issues with um, using birth control pills in the perimenopause. Well, again, I think it's given just as a way to, you know, it, 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 it's like, okay, your hormones are playing up again. You know, um, often what happens in a perimenopause, two main things, I'm sure you know, that our estrogen starts going kind of crazy, like really up and down. I call it the perimenopausal estrogen roller coaster. At times, some of us in our 40s make double the estrogen that we did in our 20s. It's just all that um, FSH, it's all the, the ovaries are being kind of whipped <laughs> into action <laughs> in this last ditch attempt to um, do what they're supposed to do. And that can, high estrogen can cause a lot of grief. Um, so, so up and down estrogen roller coaster is the kind of one main thing. And then the other thing that happens in our 40s is less progesterone production. It's not, it is possible to boost progesterone and enhance our progesterone in our 40s, but it's a bit harder because our, our ovaries are less 
a little bit less vital than they were. So that's where, you know, enhancing ovarian function nutritionally, being fully nourished, self-care, some things you mentioned. And also there is a role for, I think there's definitely a role for natural progesterone, biological progesterone in perimenopause. It can be extremely helpful. Let's talk about that. How do you use progesterone in the perimenopause? Um, well, I guess I usually start with a cream, a transdermal, you know, cream, sort of a low-dose cream is sort of a, a, a first-step approach. I, I usually try to dose it. Only, if, if I can tell that my first question for anyone, actually, at any age is, I ask the woman and I also ask the body, you know, and ask these blood tests. It's like, are you ovulating? Is ovulation happening? Because ovulation is how we make progesterone. So that's my first step. I want to give the body a chance, honor the body. It's like, what can you do about progesterone? Can you make it? I'll go on record and say young women can. You know, women under 40, 45 should always be able to make more progesterone. You just, it's just about identifying the obstacle. Why are they not ovulating? Whether it's PCOS or stress or thyroid or thyroid's a big one. What is preventing them from ovulating and then fixing that and giving the ovaries a chance to make their own progesterone. But then there's still the option to come in with a little bit of extra supplemental. And so I asked the same supplemental progesterone. I asked the same question for women in their late forties is like, can you ovulate? Are you ovulating? Let's do what we can for that. And if you are ovulating, then I try to give the progesterone after in the second half of the cycle in the luteal phase after ovulation as a little bit of dessert <laughs> supplementary is that how you would that be how you'd approach it yeah yeah absolutely and um you know definitely don't want to interfere with ovulation especially if they're you know fertility is an issue but still for maximizing ovarian production so starting with after ovulation around cycle day 12 or 14 typically would start around day 14 and then till about day 28 or till their period starts depending yeah. on whether their periods are real or regular or not and just to you know it depends on what how long their cycle is for some women it's a 30-day cycle for some women it's a 40-day yeah. cycle so really honoring their natural rhythm and then i'll occasionally start it earlier even as early as cycle day eight um, with maybe uh, a lower dose or the same, again, low dose transdermal progesterone if they're having really bad PMS symptoms, if they're still having bad PMS symptoms. But typically, once they... Um, once their body kind of gets that extra juice, that extra time to repair and rest, they, um, those PMS symptoms resolve too. And, you know, definitely they're most likely a result of the low progesterone among other nutrients, et cetera. But um, so adding that progesterone is so beneficial for them. Yeah. So it's soothing. It's a soothing hormone. It soothes PMS, helps with sleep. It, it soothes. One of the other things I'll use it for, recommend it for quite routinely is um, hormonal migraines or premenstrual migraines, if you sort of treat much of that, just because it, it has a direct, progesterone has a very strong effect on the brain. So it seems to, to me, it seems to be one of the, you know, in the top kind of three or four things that can ease migraines together with magnesium and potentially avoiding mm -hmm. gluten and yeah. Oh yep. yeah, avoiding the triggers for sure. And maybe adding B2. B2 is another yes. thing that I like to do, 100 to 200 milligrams even daily, Absolutely. Um, especially if they're having a migraine, but that will help nix it. Absolutely magnesium, absolutely progesterone. Now I was just lecturing in Canada this weekend and one of the questions to me was like, they use the progesterone for a client with menstrual migraines, but then the migraines shifted to like day two or three of the cycle and they were asking, 
what did I think they should do for that client, um, continue the progesterone through the first couple days of their period. And I, and, and I definitely added the magnesium and the vitamin B2 and sometimes an estrogen, I would use like a really low dose estrogen patch or a topical estrogen cream if clients had menstrual migraines during their cycle and progesterone wasn't covering it. Well, what are your thoughts? What would you do yeah. for that client? The reason it can shift to that day, that's not, not that unusual, actually, day two or three. So we know now from the research, make, it completely makes sense to me, one of the migraine triggers is the, the drop in estrogen from high to low. And it's the steepness of the drop, I think. So, which, which is why it's worse during perimenopause, because we start getting these, like, the roller coaster goes up and down. So this really high free fall of estrogen is a migraine trigger. And so that makes sense because that's when our estrogen is kind of bottoming out because right around day two, I guess. And so that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, I think uh, certainly I've seen it work to kind of carry progesterone through into the cycle. It makes sense to me that even a little bit of estrogen during that time to prevent it from bottoming out too low. But I think what also helps what I do with my patients is prevent estrogen from going too high. This is what I say in my book. And it's like, put some boundaries around estrogen. She's great. She's really great, but we really don't want her, you know, going so high on the roller coaster, just dominating the body the way it can, she can in, in perimenopause. So that's about helping promote healthy estrogen detoxification, which is always important, especially important in perimenopause when it's going up so high. And that helps, I think that find, I find that kind of buffers from some of the high estrogen symptoms. Um, and that comes back to microbiome, healthy intestinal bacteria. It's one of the main ways we get rid of estrogen. So that becomes more important than ever in our 40s. And also reducing alcohol. I'm just going to put that out there because I'm disturbed by how much some women drink. And again, I'm disturbed by the way society's kind of normalized that. And it, it, it's a problem for hormone clearance. It's a problem for estrogen and hormone balance. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I think there's that, there's that excuse given, oh, well, a glass of wine is good for your um, longevity. It's good for your heart, right? It has resveratrol in it. And I said, is it really, you know, I had to think of that research, right? Because we were looking, it was the study-based research, but I was looking, you know, definitely resveratrol is a good thing. But I was looking at the societies where drinking wine is part of the lifestyle, right? And they're not drinking wine alone in their empty, dark house. They are drinking wine with friends and family and laughing. So it's really oxytocin yeah. that's part of that ceremony, that setting, that's your age-defying hormone. You know, and I was so, uh, you know, I do challenge that because the research on alcohol in general is neurodegenerative right? And, and probably because it affects our microbiome too. And I, uh, there's a place and a time and I will look for the research to support my vices. Why <laughs> one of them? And, uh, but it, it's that, it's that, you know, that truth telling it affects our microbiome. Absolutely. And it, there's a direct, I'm sure you know, there's a linear relationship between alcohol intake and breast cancer risk. So it's almost like just a straight up, like the more alcohol, the higher the risk. And I think part of it's to do with estrogen clearance. I think because alcohol does increase our ex estrogen exposure. It's just the way it impairs estrogen detoxification. That's, that's part of it. I think there's probably just a toxic effect from alcohol as well. So I don't know. I mean, I drink as well a little bit. You know, I try to, I have my little magic number for women. I think women can get away with half of what men can. So if you're drinking as much as your husband's drinking, that's, I'll just say like in general to people out there, that's probably too much. You know, um, I think women, 
my reading of the literature and my sort of clinical experiences, I think maybe four or five drinks in a week is the maximum for a woman. And not all at one time. <laughs> not all at one time. No. <laughs> So, yeah. So, and I think that's with estrogen metabolism, right? Let's talk about that estrogen metabolism to help that keeping, I like how you said that, you know, she's a good girl. Let's keep some boundaries on her, right? That'll keep her better behaving. And so I love that um, analogy. So with estrogen metabolism, which is so important, now we can test it in functional testing. We can look at estrogen metabolism. We really want to look at the 2,4,16 methoxy estrogen metabolites. And but to really find out what's going on with those pathways, it's still just a piece of the picture. But bottom line, it says we all, you know, from what I know is we all, the things that benefit that healthy detoxification is the lifestyle, is energy, being in nature, eating whole foods, specifically cruciferous vegetables. And there's a benefit to soy isoflavones. And there's a benefit to flaxseed lignans from flaxseed. So those are three big groups that um, I think, are beneficial for estrogen detoxification. But when I say soy, because there's so much soy that's been um, altered, it's like adulterated maybe is a better word, um, that are GMO, but I really mean miso tempeh and a little bit goes a long way and using that intermittently when I'm talking about soy isoflavin. So fermented soy such as miso and tempeh. So um, and fresh ground flax seeds and the cruciferous vegetables. I know those are some of the three big ones for healthy estrogen detoxification. What else have you found? Oh, those are the big ones. Vegetables. Vegetables are it. I mean, vegetables feed the microbiome. As you say, the cruciferous ones have specific phytonutrients to help usher estrogen out of the body, facilitate it through you know the right pathways. Because there's different pathways that estrogen can go on her way out of the body and some pathways are really safe and just straight out the door and some pathways she becomes temporarily a bit more dangerous in terms of breast cancer and so we want to be pushing her out the right pathway and I agree about a little bit of soy the research is that small amounts of healthy soy like a you know an organic or like a a, um, fermented soy or um, an organic soy can help to promote estrogen detoxification. So I think that's important information because there is kind of a bit of a scaremongering weird thing going on about soy. I, I mean, I think it's a food that needs to be eaten in moderation and carefully because it can also can suppress thyroid in excess. So I'm not, a, you know, I don't want my patients eating a lot of soy, but I also don't want them to be afraid to have a little bit of tempeh or something. But people have got this idea that soy is estrogen, therefore it's bad. No, it's actually kind of, it's actually an anti-estrogen in in menstruating women, we have a lot of estrogen already to deal with. It actually buffers, blocks receptors, and helps with detoxification. Beautiful. Thank you. That's well said. Exactly. Yeah. A little bit goes a long way, and it's not to be feared. It's not to be overconsumed, like soy milk. Eh, no. <laughs> no, it's soy powders like we used to do in the 80s or something. You know, that's no, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> no, no, no. And uh, so that's good to it's good to hear that. Now, what about how do you address? And if you could walk us through a scenario, if a client comes to you, say she's a 48-year-old female with a history of breast cancer or recent diagnosis of breast cancer. How would you address her as she's entering now that, you know, she's perimenopausal, she's had this diagnosis of breast cancer? Right. Okay. Well, certainly, I mean, I work mostly in terms of breast cancer prevention. And I guess, um, you know, treating women with a history of breast cancer or a family history of breast cancer, 
I think, yeah, one of the first steps is you mentioned about sort of assessing for how well she's metabolizing estrogens. I think that can be helpful to kind of look at that and support the body in um, healthy detoxification of estrogen. I also, okay, the other thing I use, I'll just say, this opens up a whole new topic. Iodine is very protective of breast tissue. And it, the reason, this is fascinating researcher, forgetting her name, she's in Mexico City, she recently returned one of my emails. I'm just totally fascinated by her. Carmen, I forget her last name. She's done some research on the estrogen receptors in breast tissue and how iodine you know, is, is involved in that receptor and helps to downregulate estrogen sensitivity and kind of slow down breast cell division. And I think, well, at least down where I, in Australia, iodine deficiency is very common. So I think it's, it's one of my you know, first things to assess for iodine deficiency and look at using a safe dose of iodine as help for breast cancer prevention. Mm. What do you think? Is that something you've looked I at? think I also would, before I would write for iodine, we check thyroid antibodies. So yes. definitely make sure if there's, you know, TPO, antithyroglobulin antibodies, we wouldn't use iodine other than nutritionally through the food sources. So I had kind of had this window in my, or this, you know, pendulum in my practice where initially with fibrocystic breast and breast lumps and abnormal mammograms, I was a higher dose iodine, right? I would definitely do that, check their urinary output, et cetera, and, and replace it. And then, um, and then as I learned more over the years about thyroid antibodies, I, I conserved that amount to really only in cases of acute situations and using it short term, but certainly in patients with any breast abnormality and abnormal thermography and normal thyroid antibodies, but also really emphasize the you know, getting it through sushi seaweed. And it's amazing how much we can absorb that, you know, through the, those you know, combination with the phytonutrients just tremendously and really get um, powerful benefits that way. So very cautious on high dose iodine, but a little bit does go a long way. And I am a big believer of it. There's a little touch of iodine in Mighty Maca for that reason in my greens formula. That's in fact, that's the exact question I emailed Carmen about. The researcher was, um, how much iodine, and she's talking about molecular iodine, which is a safer form than potassium iodide. I said, how much can one safely give someone with thyroid antibodies? It was exactly my question about antibodies. And she, same answer, low. You need to stay low, like just in the hundreds of micrograms or lower. And just on the topic of iodine supplementation, it's confusing, it's a little bit scary because, so what you and I are talking about giving, you know, potentially or in the hundreds of micrograms or for someone without thyroid antibodies giving maybe the low thousands of micrograms at the most, that's what this highs I would ever go. There's a lot of iodine supplements out there that contain in one dose, 50,000 micrograms. So that's the difference we're talking about. Yeah. So it's very, if you're not careful, it's very easy to overdose on iodine just casually, just with something you got online. So yes, it, it's a topic that needs some, I think usually some advice, some professional advice to, or just sticking with, as you say, just food sources. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's key is, you know, one of the, who's most likely to get breast cancer, you know, going back to our breast cancer patients is someone who's had a history of breast cancer. And unfortunately, they're untouched. Um, you know, I would say they're, they're, um, they, it's the time in their life where they really become active about their lifestyle choices. And it's a wake up call for so many women that it's a time to take control and to, 
look always, and I always encourage my clients, let's look at the reasons you got breast cancer in the first place. What's going on? And let's reset that. And 90% of of, of that can be accomplished through therapeutic lifestyle changes and that sense of awareness. And it doesn't matter if you've had, you know, you're, you don't have it, had it or have it currently, it's these changes work and they make a difference in the quality of our life. And, and that's vitally important and not to be afraid about bioidentical progesterone too, to balance sometimes the reason that we got breast cancer to begin with. There's new research that it may, the first, like just a few months ago, maybe we saw the research that the first time that showing that progesterone, real bioidentical progesterone may be effective as treatment for breast cancer. So they were talking about it even beyond, you know, its role as prevent, potentially prevention to kind of going the next step. So yeah, that, that's, a, and that's very different than progestins in conventional HRT and in the pill, which have a breast cancer promoting effect. So again, there's that stark difference between real progesterone and progestins. And it's beautiful to see that research coming out because until really that we recognize how bad progestins were in these long prospective controlled studies, we weren't researching the bioidentical inexpensive form of progesterone. So I just thank you so much. Now tell people how to get a hold of you and where they can get more information. I know you're offering a couple chapters of your book to the period repair manual, which is so awesome. Yep. So I'm giving a free download of a PDF of what's the it's the introduction and the first two chapters. So I hope people enjoy that. And you can you know that's yours to have. You can people can share that with their friends if they want the PDF. Um, and then they can find me at Lara Bryden's Healthy Hormone blog. This is larabryden.com, where I blog pretty regularly, every month or so. And also on Facebook at the same Lara Bryden's Healthy Hormone blog, and on Twitter at Lara Bryden, Instagram. At Laura Bryden. <laughs> Perfect. And that's spelled L-A-R-A-B-R-I-D-E-N. Yep. It's so, been so nice to talk to you. It's such a pleasure. Nice to talk with you too. It's great to have a like-minded individual. So to all our listeners, get more information, take control no matter where you are now, and know that this is uh, the next right step. So I look forward to hearing all from all of you, share this interview. We need to spread the word about this. And also, um, you know, like it below, add your comments below and look forward to hearing more. Thank you.